A lot of people, especially they're told by coaches, by training plans, go slower, go easier to get faster. But when you start moving uphill, you have to put in a certain amount of effort because otherwise you don't move uphill and your race, your stride and your efficiency, everything will be completely off. It will be nothing like what you're going to do in the race because you're going to have to pretty much walk uphill really slowly in order to keep your heart rate down. So you have to remember the fact that if you go to the hills and mountains, zone two is more your friend than when you're running on the flat. And that sort of gray zone is something that people like myself and Killian use a lot more than people would have thought. So I know like the whole 80-20 philosophy, it works really well for on track and on road. But when you go to the mountains, sometimes to work on that efficiency and to actually be able to move well through the mountains, you're going to have to use more of that, that gray area in between. Hello friends, welcome to or welcome back to a Runner's Life podcast. You were just listening to a snippet of the conversation with Jonathan Alban. We talk about his racing, take a deep dive into training philosophies, talk about the 80-20 rule, talk about double threshold days, and he shares some absolute gems of advice, such as what you're listening to, plus some other tips. Before we jump into the conversation, you'd be doing me a massive favor by sharing this podcast if it resonates with you, liking, subscribing. It helps more than you know, but also thank you for listening to the podcast. But with that being said, let's jump into the conversation with John. Hi, John. Welcome to A Runner's Life podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. No, it's great to talk to you. You're a legend in the sport. And as this podcast is called A Runner's Life podcast, what does A Runner's Life mean to you? I guess if you could ever define what a runner's life is, I guess mine would be it. I mean, running is both my hobby and my job. Pretty much my whole lifestyle revolves around training, especially for running. And pretty much everything I do on a day-to-day basis is specifically sort of engineered to try and make me as uh, the best runner I can be. So I definitely am uh, living the runner's life. And I guess you'd say it's all-encompassing. And I know, obviously beforehand you used to work for tfl as a building surveyor before moving to norway did you ever get chartered or did you ever how far did you go in building surveying no i just got my degree and then i mean strictly what i was doing for the underground wasn't exactly sort of like bread and butter building surveying anyway it was just surveying the condition of all the tube stations so it was very repetitive and then writing sort of what they need to do to fix up the finishes of the station so i think i'd need a bit of a broader um spectrum of of skills in order to get to get chartered so i never got that far running kind of took over my life way before that happened yeah that's fair enough i completely understand what you're saying in terms of like the nuts and bolts and you know of like defects and things like that but actually building surveyors work tends to be a lot broader in terms of project management contract admin all that kind of stuff as well so like you're saying condition surveys there's so much more than just looking at like damp ingress for yeah. a house <laughs> so it certainly was a lot of that no it was a, it was a good job and the best thing about it was I mean I found it relatively easy and that meant I could be a little bit more efficient with my working hours and how much energy I was putting into work because I didn't find it that difficult which left more energy and a little bit of extra time for running because that's what I really love to do at the time I, I didn't really find that I had anything else in my life I'd go to work and then what was I going to do in the evenings I had a long distance relationship so I wasn't going to hang out with my girlfriend so I ended up training and that's kind of what took over that makes a lot of sense so I want to go into the guest questions and the first one is from you probably know this person Elsie Davis yeah. another pro runner <laughs> And she asked, what is your favourite all-time spa location? Um, there was actually one 
over near Amsterdam. I forget exactly where, but it was sort of like maybe an hour away from Amsterdam. And uh, that was pretty special. It had like 20 swimming pools, 40 different saunas, like a salt uh, salt bath you can lie in, like hot, cold dip pools. Like it had just about everything you could possibly imagine and some really good food and coffee too. So uh, Elsie knows that I like to abuse my body running and then also rewarding it with some uh, good food, red wine and a, a spa after I've run as well. So, Are you able to give up the name of the place without... I'd have to look. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> okay, cool. And you talked about good food. So, what does that look like for you? Uh, to be honest, I'm I'm not actually a foodie, but I do like sort of like plain food. But I like food to be done well uh, on a day to day basis. Normally, it's the quantity of food I'm more um, worried about than the quality. But from a young age, I was always quite a picky eater, and that's actually been like sort of one of the challenges for me as a runner because I do. I understand that I need to get enough nutrients and vitamins and minerals and everything in my diet with like lots of salads and fruits and veggies and stuff. But that's just what I don't naturally want to eat. I I naturally always tend to go towards the more processed foods. And that is like one of my golden rules when it comes to nutrition is don't eat as much processed foods. I make everything from scratch and have a good variety. So that is something I have to continually work on. And without working on it, I do fall back into bad habits of just having uh, like more processed food, which I don't think is the best for you. Yeah, I hear what you mean. And I appreciate I might be guessing here, but I guess the, when you've got plainer foods obviously done well, it's also it's got a function to one for training, but also because it's obviously tastes good. So you're trying to get that balance right. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, food is fuel and it does get kind of boring when you have to eat the quantities you have to eat in, when, you, when you're training so much, especially in the winter. I train uh, a hell of a lot more than in the summer because I'm skiing. And when I, when I ski, it's a lot lower impact so I can train more without um, destroying my body. So that means I need to eat more. And then it almost becomes like a chore, especially every time you, you, you sit down, you think, okay, what am I going to make for dinner? And it, it's just like kind of – it gets boring. So to try and do the food well at least makes – yeah, if it tastes good, then at least it's a little bit – easier to to get that amount down but i'm no means like uh, a gourmet restaurant kind of person that has to have my food absolutely perfect in tiny little portions and in with about seven different um, <laughs> yeah things okay that makes a lot of sense derek asks is ocr racing not on the table anymore uh i would never say never but it's just not something i focused on this year actually uh this past season i tried everything I could to get better at fast, uh, to get better at running uphill. So um, running uphill, especially steep uphill has always been my weakness. And I put everything into trying to run uphill better. And I actually think I did succeed, especially in training. My, my uphill times were better. And in a few races, I kind of did see that improvement, but it did mean that I had to make a lot more sacrifices than usual. One being racing and racing and obstacle racing, because I mean, they're tough races. They really do beat your body up. And it's a lot harder to train well while you're doing the obstacle racing. And also I gave up things like I didn't climb as much. And I, uh, I was doing a lot less fun kind of training and doing more specific uphill uh, work. So I did really feel there was a benefit to it, but it did come with a lot of sacrifices. And I'm not even sure if in all the races I even managed to use the full benefit that I sort of made. So I couldn't actually utilize the uphill speed I'd made so I think next year I'm definitely going to be doing a lot more fun training as well but I'm just not sure with obstacle racing we'll see I mean perhaps maybe in the second half of next season 
but I've still got a lot of unfinished business in the trail running world. And it's been a fun, natural progression to go on to some of the biggest races in that sort of field. You said that like a runner. I think every runner has a tale of like, there's a race they've got unfinished business with. Like, <laughs> if you could say, give a pound to every runner that said it, would all be millionaires to be honest. I've got yes. unfinished business it, stories as well. <laughs> it's tough because, I mean, especially with road running, it's a lot about like PRs. And if you don't get your PR, you want to go back and you want to do it. And that's certainly the case for me in a sense, but less so because every single course is different and the courses continually change, especially with obstacle racing, they're so diverse. But even with trail running, there's different conditions and it really different weather and the courses get faster and slower. So it's hard to really say, like, I want to go back and do that time. But there's definitely ways I've executed races and I, I know whether I've executed a race exactly how I want to and as well as I can or maybe I've not executed as well and I want to go back and really manage to execute the race that I think I can and there's not actually that many races where I think I've executed like really really well there's always something that you can you can improve on so it's a never-ending story. When you talk about you know, reviewing the race about whether you executed it in the way that you wanted to or there's ways to move forward. How do you evaluate that objectively post-race? Well, I guess it's it's really difficult. I mean, there's, there's obvious things like I spent 20 seconds filling up a water bottle when I should have just picked up the bottle there and then walked with it because I was mm -hmm. expecting there to be cups. So I'd expect to have to stand at the table and fill up my bottle from the cups. But actually there was a bottle so I could pick up and walk like that in, in a situation like that, I can see lost time immediately. But usually it's a sort of a culmination of how I prepared sort of both physically and psychologically and then how I've actually just approached the race as a whole. And then when I've actually been racing, where my mind's been at and just whether I've actually run well or not. Like especially there's a big difference between running hard and running powerfully. And I'm always trying to run powerfully and well and efficiently rather than just trying to have a high effort level. So if I do finish a um, a race and think back and think I was just trying to run really hard and being frantic and just not not executing well, and then I'm normally very disappointed. Even if I've won the race, I could be a little bit annoyed with myself afterwards because I just see yeah, I didn't execute that well. And it's kind of more of a feeling, I guess, than it is uh, something I can put my finger on. That makes sense. We talked about the difference between running hard and running powerfully. I guess it comes down to the element of do you feel in control? Yeah, definitely. Um, like that is like a really good way of putting it because I mean, especially when you do intervals, uh, if you've been prescribed a certain amount of intervals for a certain amount of time at a certain effort level, it's very tempting just to try and hit that effort level. But actually, the main goal of what we're doing is to get from A to B as fast as possible. And it doesn't really matter what effort level as long as you go as fast as you can. So when you're doing those intervals, instead of just trying to get your heart rate to a certain amount, try and run really well and then the heart rate will follow and then you'll build these efficiencies as well as becoming fitter yeah that makes sense um george asks where do you find inspiration before and an important competition or event inspiration i mean um usually to be honest uh i have quite high expectations of myself so it's not like i need to be inspired to push hard because i really can see myself doing well and I've never had a problem with sort of emptying the tanks completely. Quite often I am worried I won't be able to empty the tanks, uh, but it never seems to be the case. When, it, when, the, when the gun goes off and everything else is forgotten, I usually end up pushing uh, as much as I can do. So I've never really felt like I needed 
inspiration in that sense but i mean i have done things like watching gladiator the night before the trail world championships that worked pretty well so i mean i guess uh i could do that sort of thing yeah i appreciate that's such a, a an open question because i think what you're alluding to is that the inspiration isn't really an external thing it's like more of an internal thing and obviously circumstances have forced you to, to become pro and do the way you're doing things so you don't really need like someone like high five and you to be like all right i'm gonna get out of the door it's just part of who you are yeah especially and also now it's an expectation that i'm going to do well so that means i have to turn up and i have to give it absolutely everything i can and it was actually interesting because uh I've, I've never really thought about it but actually being a professional trail runner it's quite different to being in other sports like free skiing or mountaineering or something like that because we have a certain day that we turn up and we have to perform and everything is on that day whereas in some other sports it's kind of oh the weather could be a bit bad or I feel a bit off this day or that day it's just kind of like we'll go another day whereas with racing you need to wake up and you need to be turned on you need to be focused on a specific day at a specific time so it is uh, a slightly different skill. Yeah, absolutely. And what you just said there actually reminded me of something. I watched a documentary. I'm not sure if you follow football at all, but in the 1998 World Cup final between Brazil and France, Ronaldo was like, when they're talking about Ronaldo, people probably think we're talking about Cristiano, but we're talking about the original Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo. And he had some issues before the actual World Cup final, before the match itself. People saying, was he going to start? Was he not going to start? And this documentary basically went behind it and there's lots of rumours that like he'd either fallen out with his coach or something happened or whatever. But he actually had a panic attack and he blacked out and the doctors couldn't find anything physically wrong with him. But it just goes to show that even people at that level, he was talking about watching this thing about the expectation on him. But at the time, people expected you to be gladiators and to keep winning. And like you just mentioned there, like people have expectation I'm not comparing you to Ronaldo, but in the sense of just like... <laughs> yeah. No. Just, how do you manage that? Yeah, no, it completely changes uh, running because once you have that expectation, you can forget to have fun when you're running and it does make it far more stressful. And it's something that I've had to sort of like really try and deal with that haven't dealt with that well because I not only have expectation of other people uh, thinking I'm going to do well, it's also on myself and it took me a while to realize that the best athletes in the world, they are still just humans and they have the same feelings and they, they are sort of operating with the same body as all other humans on the planet. And there was me trying to be one of the best uh, runners in the world, but not realizing that you can't forget about all the stuff that you've been doing over the years to get to the position you're in anyway and keep doing that and not suddenly think that it's going to become really easy once you've got a few results that it's you're continually having to put a lot of effort in, you're continually having to learn a lot. and You kind of have to forget that everyone thinks you're doing it without any effort at all and just keep your head down and keep grinding away. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you touched on about the importance of having fun. I'm not comparing myself to you, but something I've been doing recently is in my daily runs, I'd usually have a point to point I'd run to. But the other day I thought, how many parks I can run in? Or just something fun where you're actually having to think about your route and change things up. Do you do anything similar? I know you're probably more outdoors, more natural environment than I am in suburbia, but do you, how do you kind of keep the fun in your running? No, I think that's actually like enjoyment and fun is like a massive thing for me because, I mean, I only started running when I was 20 and I only ran because it was fun and I could find the flow uh, really easily and I just really enjoyed being out and running. And then when I enjoyed it, I went and did it more. 
And if I got a little bit injured or like a little niggle or something like this, or I got a bit overly tired, it wasn't as fun. So I didn't run as much. And then I, I rested up and the niggle went away and then I ran some more. So I kind of like my whole training ethos was based off just enjoyment. And I think that's kind of why I ended up where I am. I didn't have a coach that's really pressing me to do X intervals for X time and sort of taking the fun out of it. It was just kind of like up to me. And that meant that pretty much all my runs were just based around what was going to be fun. So if there was a bridge back when I very first started running, there was this footbridge, but I never ran over the footbridge. I ran through the river because for me, that was more fun. And I made sort of a traily type loop because that's what I enjoyed. When I was running around London, I, I'd be running to and from work because that's what I enjoyed and it was the most time efficient. But then I was trying to extend the route to like sort of run along the Thames or actually moved further away from work so I could run through Richmond Park every day. Uh, so it's uh, like I think for, for the majority of people, yeah, you can devise like the fanciest training plan ever and have this amount in zone two, this amount in zone three and be really smart with your training. But ultimately, just to train more is going to make you better. And by training, uh, by putting enjoyment into your runs, it means you're going to train more and you will improve as long as you don't get those those injuries so i think that should be the most important thing for most people is like how can i make this run fun because it will take away this sort of like negative psychological impact the run might have and then just make it that it's easy to put your shoes on and head out the door which is the most important thing yeah you hit the nail on the head there i completely agree with that one so i want to move on to a recent race so you were defending your title at the world trail running championships in thailand now you have had some time to reflect on it what are your reflections on that race and how it went? Um, thinking back to it, I think I tried to prepare as well as I could. And I think I got myself in pretty good shape, but there was something missing. And I felt that in the week before, like quite often, I, I think like I'm either, oh my God, I'm in really good shape, but I don't really want to tell anyone because I don't want to jinx it. Or I'm in terrible shape. But now I was kind of like, I neither felt like I was in good shape or bad shape. And I think then to end up coming third, that's kind of what I deserved for that that sort of feeling I had. And like there's things I could have changed with my training leading up. Like maybe I just was just slightly not sort of healthy enough. Maybe I should have taken a few easier weeks and then a few harder weeks and then did did the race as opposed to sort of like grinding away. But really, I think I did as good a job as I could have done in that situation. I mean, it had been a long season. And generally, I normally struggle to have really good shape later in the year because I, I do a lot of skiing and then a lot of running and then I get really good shape. And then to hold that shape throughout the long season, I do find relatively tough. I mean, I think most people most people do. So in previous years, I've done worse having a, another peak to my form in the autumn. But this wasn't like my best race ever, but it wasn't a bad one either. So obviously disappointed to come third and was hoping to have run better. but then. Looking at the speeds we were running, I still it still looks like I had a pretty solid race, uh, especially considering the conditions and stuff. So I've still got kind of mixed feelings about it. But um, all I know is uh, I'm hungry to do better. So uh, it's kind of a good thing that I came third. The next one is next June. So I've got some months to train now. And it's left me hungrier to have a really good base building training block now and then come back fitter and, and stronger in the spring. You just you touched on so many important points there. I think you <laughs> know. No, it's good. I think this is what you want a conversation for, and it makes me think about certain things. Like you talked about, I don't think people always appreciate it. Like you still got to train, do the training, but 
like knowing where you, where you're going to be at your best potentially at a certain point in the year during managing the loads, um, how training goes, uh, managing that, thinking about maybe the changes, but then obviously it changes depending on the situation that you're in. And then even just the mindset as well, you know, just uh, the competitor in you. And I'm probably jumping the gun here, but like that makes me think about mindset. And especially for the amateur runner, you often hear kind of people talking about A, B and C goals. I mean, what's your kind of thoughts on that when you're racing? Do you have A, B and C goals or do you just have one goal? Yeah, I think I I have to prioritize certain races and think they're the ones that I'm going to rest for uh, will taper into and then properly recover for afterwards. Uh, and then I also have training races, which are sort of like more designed uh, to uh, get me race ready, sort of like let me freshen up sort of race tactics and have a good hard training session. So I definitely do kind of have A, B and C races, but I never really label them like that. It's more just kind of like this race, I really am going to put all the eggs in that basket. And then this other race is going to be kind of more like, I won't rest as much into it and um, I'll take it more as a training kind of kind of race. It's just, it's, it's really hard to manage how many priority races you can have in the, in a year. Like there's like pro marathoners will do two, maybe three marathons at most in a year. Whereas as a trail runner, you're kind of expected to do about five or six marathons plus a couple of ultras in a year to have a good season. So it does, it does get quite a lot and it is important to remember that you need to remain healthy as well as fit because it's that health aspect which is really important to have longevity and I definitely want to be running for my whole life and I want to have lots of good seasons strung together and it's it's not going to do many favours by really, really pushing for one season and then burning out and then having problems in the following years. So it's it's about finding that, that balance. That makes sense. So you're basically prioritizing the races in terms of importance but the races that you're doing like say an a race you'd still be going in there full focus for wanting to win wanting to compete yeah like even a training race i'm still pushing as hard as i can and that's why a lot of my training races they're usually quite competitive hard races anyway and i just have to accept the fact that i'm not going to be as rested going into it and i'm still going to push as hard as i can and then once I do rest into another race, I will have better shape and I will be able to, to perform better. Uh, but it, it changes throughout the season as well as to uh, what races I'd use as preparation races. As, as a rule of thumb, normally I try and stagger my priority races so I finish the season with longer races and start with shorter ones. And this comes from doing a lot of skiing in the winter. It takes a long time for the legs to get acclimatized to the, the beating of that running has on them so to start with shorter races and then practice running those and then to gradually increase the race distance is sort of like a foolhardy way to train for those long distances but maintain the speeds that you're running at yeah that makes a lot of sense and just kind of want to move on to some of the pressures as well that pro runners or you know sub elite runners have with just the media and the relationship between doing the work that you're doing but then being present on social media and all that entails for the media side, for you know um, sponsorships and things like that. How do you kind of manage that that balance, really? Uh, poorly. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm I'm not the best on social media. Like I think I'm just lazy. I, I'm not lazy in a sense that I I go running a lot and I love to exercise. But apart from that, I I just don't like having to post on social media. It's just not something that really it doesn't 
give me a lot of satisfaction to tell everyone what I'm doing all the time. And if if I don't think about it, suddenly a couple of weeks has gone by and I haven't posted anything. And that's not really the best thing, especially for sponsors. And I want to be telling everyone like what I'm doing and and what races are coming up and stuff. It's just I don't find myself doing it because I just something deep down, just I don't enjoy it. But I do enjoy Strava because Strava is, it's like the only social media that I see that is kind of data driven. It's very honest and I'm like a very honest person. I like to be very transparent, honest, like clear. I have done this run. I had this heart rate. I did these speeds over this elevation and that's it. Then it goes out there and then people can look into the data themselves rather than going on Instagram or Facebook and telling everyone what speed I ran a 5K in, but leaving out the fact that it was downhill or something like that. Like that doesn't really, I I don't really like, that's why I like Strava the most and that's why all my stuff does go on Strava. I try and write in the description what effort level um, or what I was trying to work on within that session because I see that as the most important thing when it comes to sessions to to sort of execute them at the correct the correct effort levels or to at least have always have a purpose to the session even though the purpose might be that there's no purpose I'm just going out to have fun at least that's like something and writing that in the description and then putting it out there and then people can follow me that way like people can see that I'm at home in Norway or I'm like uh, away racing somewhere uh, by looking at Strava and seeing where I am. So I don't really feel the need to sort of go onto social media and tell everyone that I'm in this fancy place. I can just go and, and see it, I guess. I guess from what you're saying with what you describe with Strava, it's not taking you out of the moment. It's just a reflection of what's happened without removing you from that moment. Whereas potentially say, if you've got to go and think about the posts you've got to put for Instagram or even afterwards, it kind of takes you out of the moment because you're thinking about the post during the run and even after the run, where Strava is just like done. Yeah, I guess so. And I've, I've never been one that likes to boast or likes to scream about what I've done or this or that. I just like to get on and do it. So that's like, I know that's just a personality thing. And it just seems like with most social media, it's it's con- even if that's not what people want to be doing that's just kind of what it seems like it's like look at me i did this or look at me i did that or i'm here and it's con- continually screaming about what you're doing in life and kind of boasting about it and that's like very at odds with my personality maybe so i've just not never enjoyed it that much uh, and i know as an athlete it does help and it helps with sponsors and i i probably do receive less money from sponsors because the social media side of things is poor and when i do stop performing at such a high level i won't have as much to fall back on but that's just kind of something that i'm trying not to think about too much at the moment i'm just thinking as long as i keep winning races as long as i keep racing well and trying to push myself as hard as i can go and keep performing then i don't need to think about that other side as much and that's just how i've been operating for the past couple of years so we'll just see how it goes for me to be honest though, I think a lot of athletes are in that mindset of just it being a foreign thing and obviously I don't live your life but I'm sure there's days that you, you want to talk about things, days that you don't want to talk about things and if it's your job, do you expect other people to go in there and talk about their job on social media? Yeah, no, it's, it is true. It's sort of like, I guess like when I win a race and someone gives me a medal, it's like, well, when other people go to their job and do a good report or something like that, they don't get a medal. So it kind of, it does kind of feel like that, that this... Uh, I mean, I do it because I, I, I love to do it and I and that is the, the main reason. I don't need to find other other reasons, but I, I like to help people. But then that's why we made the training app and that's why I sort of put everything out on Strava 
And I generally try and answer as many questions that are training related as possible. Like I like trying to help people in that way. I just don't really enjoy posting on social media continually. I know, I know what you mean. And I'm not trying to convert you into like an <laughs> dancing TikTok star, but you just never know like who you're inspiring as well. I know that the tension between doing the, the work and posting about it but i think one of the great things about social media is just it's the opportunity to be seen whereas when you think about pre-social media it was so much harder to to be seen and uh, connect with different people but i I completely understand what you're saying though yeah no i think uh, deep deep down i am just lazy but that's a great (laughs) trait to be as a runner because when you're not running to do as little as possible so you can recover as well as you can is really important so to have less other stuff in life is uh is relatively important like obviously you need some other stuff so you don't you don't just just become that i'm a runner and nothing else and maybe i'm uh, in the danger zone for, of that happening but uh ultimately like to become over trained is like a culmination of training stress plus plus life stress so trying to minimize that life stress is is really important as a professional and i guess social media is is a part of that life stress yeah absolutely so changing gears, I want to put this to you. I'm sure you've been asked a lot of similar questions, i.e. what's it like training in Norway? What's it like training with Killian? What's it like being a pro? But if you were asking yourself the questions, what questions do you wish people would ask you? Oh, <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got no idea. I mean, uh, most people ask me just what's the secret? And the truth is like there is no secret to, to getting better. It just takes hard work and a long time and a lot of consistency. And that's not really a secret. It's just a sort of uh, maybe like a personality trait. Like some people are more likely to become good athletes just because they're the sort of pers- people that put their head down and just work and work and time goes by. And after three years, they've improved a lot. So I think it's kind of like maybe that's an answer. Maybe that's not an answer. <laughs> Yeah, that's true, actually, because I, I mean, I joke about it as well. When I first started this podcast, I was trying to find the secret. And like you're saying, there is no secret. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, uh, there's things that will help certain people. And there's like yeah. a few specific workouts that Killian has recommended to me that have really helped. And I also feel like I'm the person that when I'm told something like that, I'll go out and do it and then do it again and then do it again. And it will help. Whereas a lot of people have asked me like, what is the secret for getting a better uphill running stride or be able to run uphill better? And I tell them exactly what Killian told me and give them the exact same workout. And they have the terrain to even go and do it, but they'll maybe do it once and then that's it. And then they yeah. won't do it. And then it, they, they, probably some time will go by and the next time they'd ask me, so what's the secret? I said, well, I told you before. It's just you didn't, you didn't go out and do it a lot. So it always comes back to this consistency and this idea that training does work. So doing lots of training will make you fitter like obviously there's caveats like not doing too much or at least that full life stress plus training stress can't become too much and don't don't get injured but ultimately you need to go out and do a lot of training and consistently do it for a long time so just find ways that enable you to do that yeah that makes a lot of sense and i agree with you saying there isn't one secret workout or one killer workout that's going to take you from a to z but put that to one side I, I can't let this go. You mentioned about some of the stuff that Killian passed on to you. Like, are you able to talk about some of those workouts, those tips that have helped you improve? Yeah, sure. Um, like uh, the main workout that you recommended to me, because I, I said my uphill running is 
poor compared to the rest of my running. And that's uh, that's where Killian's strongest. So Killian's relatively a poorer flat runner, uh, but he's very strong on steep. So, I mean, I asked him and he, and he said, especially a few of the other athletes that are really good, a few of the other Salomon athletes, he said when they all started doing this drill workout uphill, we all improved. So he told me what it was. And actually, it turns out it's in the Uphill Running Athlete book as well. I put it in the training app. And it's um, when it comes, like, you find a hill and you do really fast feet, high cadence type steps for, like, a minute, two minutes, three minutes or something like that. So you're just doing a really, really fast cadence. And then when that couple of minutes is up, you, you switch to a really big, long stride, a really big, bounding kind of stride and do that for a couple of minutes and then switch back to the, the high cadence. So you're kind of working on both ends of the spectrum of your running stride and overstressing sort of, yeah, both both ends. That's when you combine them back together, it really creates like a really nice, strong uphill running stride. And it really worked for me and a lot of people I've told it to, I found it worked for them. And it is just like, it's a, a way of running uphill, doing some drills and it does work. So it's sort of like drills, but you're still going up a mountain. You're just running up in a in a specific kind of kind of way. And it goes back to your early point. We talked about running powerfully, isn't it? I guess by working both sides of the, the running stride, for example, you're learning to work more efficiently for your stride. Yeah, definitely. And and it does make you really think about an uphill stride. It's very different to a flat stride. When you run on the flat, each foot can kind of pass forward and land in front of the other foot. But then when you're running steep, there's you're not going to take big enough steps for that to happen. So if you're trying to do that, you're going to try and take two big steps and waste energy trying to sort of like go up too fast. Whereas when you make that high cadence, your feet have to be more under your shoulders and you have to kind of bounce more and use the spring in your in your calf or your rebound. So you really work on that. And, and, and then when you come to a race, you can really feel yourself running in a certain way on the flat. And then as it gets steeper and steeper, changing your strides, your feet are more underneath your shoulders and it does it does really work like it's definitely transformed my running having done it now for two years but I have done it for the past two years like I started off maybe doing a minute high cadence minute bounding minute high cadence like for maybe 30 minutes or something like that now I do sort of three to five minutes worth and then I've even gravitated towards doing it with a five kilo unweighted vest as well so not only do you need this consistency, you need to progress the workout as well and just know that over time it, it will work. And then when you come to do your uphill intervals, to remember back to that drill workout, remember how you're running uphill and try and do that rather than just trying to get that effort level to the right level or get it as hard as possible to try and run uphill well. And then your body will actually fall back into uh, a nice uphill running stride. Yeah, no, thank you for explaining that. It's, it's just tough because, I mean, most people might not have a 30-minute heel to do it up, but then they'd have to break it up into sort of like some 10-minute kind of intervals and run down in a break or something like that, just make it work with whatever they have. I've never tried to do it on a treadmill. I think it would look relatively strange, but who knows, maybe it would work. But it does mean that if people do travel to somewhere with big hills or mountains, then to do some workouts like that where you get most bang for your buck, not just I know it's fun to go on like a long, slow run in the mountains, but that's only going to have uh, a limited impact on your on your fitness and your efficiency gains. So when you do get to mountains, to make make the most of them. Yeah, like you're saying, like if you've got the opportunity and it's 
something you can do then go for that that because obviously the time the feet and the distance but like you're saying if you haven't got that length to run up you can probably go up then go back down and do it again basically yeah and that actually does come back to if if people do travel to hills or mountains as well like a lot of people especially they're told by coaches by training plans go slower go easier to get faster but when you start moving uphill you have to put in a certain amount of effort because otherwise you don't move uphill and your race, your stride and your efficiency, everything will be completely off. It will be nothing like what you're going to do in the race because you're going to have to pretty much walk uphill really slowly in order to keep your heart rate down. So you have to remember the fact that if you go to the hills and mountains, zone two is more your friend than when you're running on the flat. And that sort of gray zone is something that people like myself and Killian use a lot more than people would have thought. So I know like the whole 80-20 philosophy, it works really well for on track and on road. But when you go to the mountains, sometimes to work on that efficiency and to actually be able to move well through the mountains, you're going to have to use more of that that gray area in between. You know, there's generalizations in running which have, are helpful because it, it serves the majority of people. But then it's knowing when to break it. And you talked about it in that specific example where 80-20 isn't the right thing not the right thing but isn't, isn't, isn't the best <laughs> i think thing it all comes back to how do you define easy or what is your definition of easy what is that 80 and ultimately that 80 is made up of three or four different intensities at different quantities that will change throughout the year depending on when your races are and stuff so to generalize them into just saying 80 isn't correct and if people think that that 80 is all at the exact same effort level they're likely missing some gears in their everyday running which they should be using in order to make a full all-round fitness and to work on uh, the efficiencies they need to because it's it's just standing on the start line and being as fit as possible that isn't going to cut it you need to practice running at the correct effort levels that you're going to be racing at and building those efficiencies as well because how efficiently and how fast you can move from a to b is the is the main goal whether you're really fit on the start line or not so fit as long as you can run efficiently that's going to help as well yeah that makes sense but i'm thinking that's you've got to have the base first and then once you've got the base then you can start going into that sort of territory yeah, I guess so. But then when you're building that base, if you were to continually just use zone one or low zone one as your easy, you're going to be running in a very different um, style or technique to that of your racing. So uh, by including... Oh, I agree. Stuff, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I meant in the sense of like, like if you just have it, if, if you're starting out, you'd have that, but then you do need to change, like you're saying. Sorry. To yeah, yeah. I think, no, I think... Uh, I think we're both on the same page. I think like you need to, yeah, have a good sort of like full spectrum idea, whether you, you can say it's 80, 20, it's just that 80 is going to be broken up as well. It's just, if you, if people are scheduling their training to that level of detail and not keeping sort of like an amount of randomness to their training, it can be quite dangerous because you can get dragged into missing some of those gears so, I mean, if, if you just run to work and one day you're a little bit late and the next day you've got plenty of time, so you go faster on one day and slow on the next day, it kind of all takes care of itself. But if you are scheduling exactly what gears you're running in, you need to make sure that you're uh, thinking long and hard about it or get some some advice or follow some athletes and try and ascertain what, what they're doing and how it's, how it's working. 
I feel like I could speak to you for a long time about the subtleties of this. <laughs> and I kind of want to expand a bit wider because you've probably seen this as well, especially in the amateur running world where people look at a small section of uh, a training style. They might look at the way the Canadians train or, for example, something that's come up now is just the way the Scandinavians train with the double thresholds yep. training. And then they try to extrapolate it to the amateur runner. But there's so much more into it that the elites are doing that the amateurs aren't doing. So if we're looking at, for example, just like the, the double threshold uh, principles, um, yep. if you're an amateur runner like myself and you can't do, like, say, a double run, how could you make that work for, say, like a single run? I think to, to begin with, you need to like take a step back and think about what, what they're talking about when they say threshold. And I guess threshold, uh, generally speaking, is where you're producing more lactic acid then you can clear. So that means you're kind of on borrowed time. And I think when the Scandinavians, especially are talking about threshold training, it's actually sub threshold. So it's just beneath that, that level. So that means they're not burning matches and they can recover much better after the training. Uh, you agree or? Yeah. 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 So the idea is that they can do a lot more training because they're holding themselves just under that, that threshold that threshold level and then that means it does allow them to be able to do two sessions in a day but what people probably don't realize is that during the day the Ingebrigtsons for example they're probably like playing on Call of Duty or something like the a lot of these athletes they can do nothing during the day they can think about nothing they can literally just relax and absorb that training and then the recovery is twice as fast whereas if you're going to wake up early you're going to do your threshold session then you're going to try and have breakfast take the kids to school go to work stress about some report that's due and then get home cook dinner and then think about your second threshold session it probably is that you can't really manage it as well so you need to adapt adapt the plan and i mean you can make that first or second session slightly longer so the Englishans maybe for example they do two slightly smaller sessions whereas you could just do one slightly longer session but really you need to look at the plan as a whole and I kind of think there's two varying factors that you need to look at when you look at like say your week plan and that's just how much time you have or how much um, how much training you can actually recover from. And then when you look at that, then that's the amount of training you can do. It doesn't really matter whether you do those two threshold sessions on a Tuesday or you do one on a Tuesday and one on a Thursday. If in that week you can only manage those two threshold sessions, then that's all you can do. It doesn't exactly matter when you do them. There's no magic concoction. And it's far better to try and place them where it's going to allow you to recover more and where it's going to like be easiest for you. So it might be that you get Fridays off. So both sessions on a Friday can work really well for you. It might be that you get Tuesday evenings off and Thursday evenings off. So that's when it's going to work best for you. And to try and work it into your everyday life is probably going to be give you a lot a lot better benefits because then you can actually, actually recover from the training. You can actually absorb it and you can actually then go on to do it the next week and the next week and the next week rather than if you're pulling your hair out, trying to do it on the same day every single week, but it doesn't work. And then at some point, you're just going to fall off the bandwagon and stop completely. You hit some great points that I hope people can like appreciate it because I've had kind of similar situations where, like you're saying, like you've really got to think about the time that you can train, but also the recovery time as well. So for example, when I was training to do my first sub three, I had one child at the time and I've got two kids and I can't train the same way. I can't recover the same way. So my training then wasn't working for 
what I tried to do afterwards because I wasn't factoring in the, the reduced time and the reduced recovery. And since I've changed that, I found that I've actually been able to kind of develop. And it's like you're saying, you have to adapt to where you are. I think that's so important. Uh, right, enough about me, but I just want to go back to, I just wanted to highlight that because I think it was such an important point what you just, you just said there. Yeah, I think also what you've just mentioned is kind of fun as well because there are many different philosophies and there's no right philosophy for any one person. But also sometimes you don't even need... Do, having the same philosophy for the same person three years in a row isn't what you need either. Sometimes you just need a change of philosophy. So that, that can also have a powerful thing that you just do something slightly different. You have a slightly different ratio of the different intensity levels or a slightly different load or change how much you're training depending on when your race is and stuff. And sometimes that's that's what you need to do to freshen things up and make things a bit new and different and keep the body guessing and then go on to, to improve. Absolutely. One thing about the double threshold training, I, I want to ask you, so your thoughts are, and I'm not sure if this is right or this is correct or not, but for those athletes that are doing it, you know, full-time, you talked about Ingebrigtsen brothers, is it more appropriate for people who are kind of closer to their, you talked about just the, the range of the speed anyways that they're working towards that are kind of more maxed out towards their VO2 max as opposed to people who probably have further to go for their VO2 max? Um, possibly. I don't, I don't really know. Like, I think loads of stuff comes in and out of fashion, like, uh, and it's, it's hard to say what works. Like normally to stick to the doing lots of training and making it work and then not getting overtrained and not getting injured. And then you'll probably end up improving, just making sure you're sort of like conforming to that is probably more important than trying to think about like exactly when you're doing workouts. But I de definitely do think that they have a very specific race they're training for and they've trained for that type of race in very controlled environment many times and know exactly the smallest details they need to do in order to prepare whereas for someone like myself with races which are like a lot more random like obstacle racing is very random mountain running they're all very different it's it's more about this sort of like full body really healthy fitness that you should be after and that's what most people should concentrate on trying to achieve and the real time you can do that is when you're not actually racing so people need to see that i'm training most when i'm not racing so the most important time is actually coming up like probably from around christmas and then through to may that's when i'll do the most training that's when i'll make my engine and i'll do long intervals i'll do long sessions i'll do lots of longer zone two runs i'll sort of like really build that big fitness and then come the spring i can specify that fitness for my races so i i really pull my hair out when people like say john my race is in five weeks what can i do it's like well all you can do now is sharpen the fitness you have so we're working with a like sort of a limited a limited kind of thing we need to sort of build that big engine first and i think that's like the most important thing that people need to get their head around that sometimes it's it's about quantity and it's about training when you, when you haven't got a race in in five weeks i mean that training is kind of like a very different style of training to what you should be doing generally yeah for sure and i think like you touched upon there i think because of the nature of your role anyways you have to be more dialed into races when they're coming up preparing effectively for it as opposed to kind of like an ad hoc i've got four weeks let's see what i can do yeah i think uh, like I, normally about 30 minutes into any sort of mountain or trail run or obstacle race 
you've used up that kind of frothy, fancy, sort of thresholdy type fitness, that sort of you know, your fresh threshold speed, and you fall back on who you are as an athlete and what you have deep inside. So it's making that deep inside fitness, which is important. And just that's what I'm saying, like sort of like about engine sizing, you're just making yourself as fit as possible. So getting bogged down in really specific interval sessions, like whether I should do two minutes or two minutes, 30 intervals or rest for 30 seconds or 45 seconds. None of it really matters unless you've built that big engine. And then from that, it's more just about quantity and about sort of like doing lots of training in a way that you can remain healthy and not get injured. So I think that's sort of like a type of training that people can have more fun with as well and more people should be trying to do in their their everyday lives and then um, only get really bogged down in thinking about these micro details when they get much closer to a race or they're getting to a much higher level. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for explaining that. I just want to go back to something you talked about earlier in terms of the workout that Killian talked about with the different stride lengths and and cadences uh, for the durations. I'm actually training for Boston next year and I know other people are as well. Do you think that that would work and what other sort of general tips would you give to people training for Boston to get used to kind of running hills on the roads? Yeah, I, I can't see why it wouldn't work. It's definitely going to be very different to uh, how I'm doing it because I'm doing it on terrain, which is similar to what I'll be racing in. So you're going to have to do it on the road, but I don't see why uh, it shouldn't work. But just generally building just a little bit of extra power in your legs is probably going to help the most. And for that, just a little bit of strength work, especially further out from the race. So in that base building phase, uh, more than six weeks or eight weeks out from the race, uh, trying to do at least one leg strength type routine per week. And if you want a good uphill powerful running stride, some good plyometric type leg strength um uh, exercises can can add that power and uh, that can really help for for if you've got a hilly a hilly race um, but then I guess it's it's also about uh, fueling during the race how you approach the hills like just accept the fact that you are going to be pushing a little bit harder on the hills maybe uh, obviously to pace a marathon well you want to try and have a bit of an even work rate but it might be that you're working a little bit harder on the uphill and then making sure you've also acclimatized your legs to the downhills as well because uh, quite a limiting factor when you run marathons isn't actually your fitness it's more the stiffness that happens in your legs once you've run that far on the tarmac so to do some specific downhill running where you really try and run race pace or a little bit faster downhill on similar hills to what the what the race is going to be like so you make your legs a bit stiff then wait a week and then do it again and then wait a week and then do it again and gradually acclimatize your legs to that that stiffness can also be uh, really important because then that way you can run the next hill better so if you can run the downhill as well you're going to be able to run the uphills afterwards far better but basically as well getting in that race pace so your legs and you and your body knows what it feels like in terms of effort yeah, race pace is all important. So in that last six to eight weeks before race to do a lot of workouts at race pace, especially a few race simulations. So you can practice what shoes you're going to wear, what kit you're going to wear, what fueling you're going to do, what fueling even the night before and the morning of. Just try and replicate your race in every way possible in those race simulations. So there are no surprises and your body gets to know exactly what you're going to expect of it. And usually I do say like a half race F, uh, pace 
kind of race uh, simulation and a two-thirds race simulation, depending on the length. Like, obviously, if you're going to do a 100-miler, to do a two-thirds race simulation probably isn't ideal for the majority of people, but you kind of get the idea, you know. Uh, and then also in that in that last six to eight weeks, do some workouts which are over threshold as well, so which are actually harder, and that will peak your fitness. So to do lots of workouts at race pace and some slightly harder can really help peak your fitness if you've built this big base by doing lots of work under threshold in the base building phase before you hit that six to eight week period. That makes a lot of sense. And thank you for sharing that. And I'm just curious, like the, the advice you're giving, is it been influenced by your time in Norway? And, and like, how's that changed since you were based in the UK? When I was based in the UK, I had zero philosophy because I, I've never had a coach. I was just working. I had work to limit how much I was training. I just ran to enjoyment. Like I'd run to and from work, cycle to and from work, go to the BMF session, go climbing a bit. And that worked really well for the fitness I had because it was just generally about training more to improve. And then once I moved to Norway, I quit my job and I got shin splints almost immediately because I had too much freedom to go running. Uh, so that meant I had to then actually try and develop some training philosophies that will work for me for the sports I was doing. And it's been a work in progress and I think it will never end. But for the last seven years of developing those training philosophies into what I think works best for me and just generally how I think you should train for a mountain and trail and obstacle running events because I definitely found that a lot of the research, a lot of the literature, it's all done for road runners and track runners. And a lot of trail runners then just try and apply the same philosophies, uh, but just do them a bit more, do them in the hills. And I don't think it really works that way. And that was probably one of the biggest things I learned from training with Killian was the fact that he has been training to be a mountain athlete for his entire life and how he was training didn't conform with that many of the sort of like bread and butter philosophies that are out there for road and track runners. So that certainly had a big influence on my training philosophies and has changed how I've trained, especially in the past two years. And the other thing that's really helped me develop these philosophies is my wife because she's also an athlete. She's also been going through the process. And if anything, she says that she's less naturally gifted at running than I am. So that means she's had to put more effort into developing these training philosophies and finding what works for her. So using her as a soundboard and her doing a lot of reading and a lot of research and listening to a lot of podcasts and looking at all these different athletes, like be the Ingebrigtsons or Blumenfeld and the triathlon boys or just any athlete which is doing well, looking at how they're training and trying to draw similarities and then try and change it to work for our lifestyle and, and the races we're doing. And that's something that she's done really well. So she's been like absolutely integral to the races that I have won and, and my career. So I pretty much tell everyone I don't really have a coach, but I guess my wife could uh, comes closest. But no, thank you for sharing. It goes to show like how we are influenced by so many people. But even like when you take all that stuff to one side, like you're saying, sometimes I think running can be overcomplicated. Yeah, definitely. Like if if you train lots, don't get injured and don't get burnt out and keep having fun, then you will probably improve uh, at the end of the day. But um, there, are, I mean, sometimes to make training fun, it means having a good a good plan in place and seeing improvements and sort of like sticking to a plan so that's another way of making training fun but isn't the only way if someone is telling you, you have to do this on this day three months before your race in order to race well 
they're likely not really being completely honest with you. Like it doesn't really matter whether you do it on that day or the day after, or you do it at like 160 heart rate or 161. Like there are, there are a lot of things going on and really, really strict plans. They shouldn't, they shouldn't put you off because nothing has to be that strict. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've mentioned about your friendship with Killian and I'm just sort of thinking, like, you, you, if you compare running to, say, tennis, you know, you've got, it's almost, there's a team around you, but when you're out there, it's you on the day. And how do you get that balance right between being friends, but also being competitors? Uh, actually, I didn't really race Killian this year. And I've actually only raced him once or maybe twice. So, but really, when, when, even if I go out and I win a race, I normally just think to myself, ah, Killian would probably have executed it better than me anyway. So it's like, it's, it's a funny thing like that, but then that keeps me hungry to improve because I mean, I have got this idea of how good I am and maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic or maybe that is actually how good I am, but I I definitely don't put myself near the top. So I've got a lot of work to do and that keeps me working hard and that's the the kind of way I like it, but we'll see. I'm, I'm sure uh, he's got some other goals next spring, but I mean, I think he'll be at Sierra now, and I'm planning to hopefully be at Sierra now. So uh, it'd be really fun to race him. But I don't want people to get a misconceived conception of how good I am compared to Killian. Killian is a very special athlete, and he is very, very good. And it's like he is beyond human. So uh, it's it's a tough like thought to think that maybe i'd be able to beat him in a race i definitely don't think i'm there yet but i mean we'll see if i keep improving every year who knows you said that like an athlete as well in terms of like you never like want to be like i'm there i'm gonna completely over but the, the essential things are you said you're still competing with him in one to two races that's one to two more than most people have so yeah. you're, you're still there i like the way you still downplayed it it's like an english thing we just downplay it completely but you're still there i guess so like uh i i think also with with trail racing there's so many different races there's so many different uh series there's so many different people competing in different types of races that no one is ever really at the same race, everyone competing. And also then all the races, they're so diverse. You can't really say this athlete is the best mountain runner on the planet because he was at that trail on that mountain, but another trail would be hotter or colder or bigger or steeper. So it's just kind of like, it's all a little bit random. And I think I definitely have improved as a trail runner, but I definitely think I've got, more room to improve and if anything that's just that's just fun because otherwise it'd be it'd be pretty uh boring yeah absolutely like i've been able to speak to like joseph gray on the podcast and he's a phenomenal athlete as well in that space so like you're saying it's there's so many quality athletes in that space and it's it's hard to kind of it, it's almost like when we talk about tennis it's like picking your favorites like is it rogers is it rafa is it Djokovic, or yeah no. serena or whatever you but know. then in tennis you've got what like clay courts grass courts like yeah. like you've got a few different variables and some of them have definitely got preferences and some are stronger on some whereas yeah. with trail running you've got like billions of different distances types of terrain altitude not altitude the different sort of like climates be it hot or be it cold i mean there's so many different variables it's 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 always going to be tough to say this person is one of a one of a kind like the best and that's why it's like it's weird how good Killian is at both running skiing mountaineering you name it but I mean he has definitely got the whole package and he definitely has been training from a very young age so I definitely feel like it's a little bit of a disadvantage having only started being an athlete when I was 
I mean, 20 running and then being a full-time athlete really for the last seven or eight years. Uh, but it's really fun trying to catch up and learning from someone that's dedicated their, their life to this. Yeah, that makes that's a great point, like you're saying, especially from where you start in terms of ages and things like that. And I just kind of want to change gears towards mindset as we kind of get towards the, the end of the conversation. And as an amateur runner, something I've been thinking about is how running has helped me personally in terms of like mentally physically and do you develop that part of you like the the running part of you but as you know as humans we are wider than just that one part how do you kind of separate the running part of you to say the husband part of you to the friend part of you to maybe the another hobby part of you so you don't kind of like let running become all of you but it's just one of the parts of just like who john is yeah, I think uh, for some parts of the year, running definitely is who I am and it is pretty much everything. And normally when it is like that, I do perform slightly worse. But then my thing that isn't running is usually to go on a scramble or like, yeah, to go on like a bit of a mountain adventure, which is still running, but it's going out scrambling instead. Uh, but really the big thing I have is the skiing in the winter. And in the winter, skiing is like it is my hobby it's it's really fun it's great training but it's just like it's all about the skiing and finding the lines and finding good snow and being out and doing hours so running has kind of become my job I still really enjoy it but I do have to have sort of other hobbies it's just it's great that that hobby gives my body a bit of a break from the pounding and it's still really good training but it's just something I I really do enjoy um but other stuff in my life, I mean, I've put a lot of effort into being a good husband, but we don't have kids. We live in a simple house. We have a few friends, but most of those are into training as well. Like, There's not really that much else in my life. I don't know, maybe that's what's required or maybe that's just what's required for me or maybe I should try and find some other hobbies. But so far, I've just been, I've been having a lot of fun. And if something isn't broken, I've always been of the thought that you shouldn't try and fix it so I've just been living my life trying to enjoy every day and it's usually easy to enjoy every day so not worrying too much about it yeah no, that's a fair point and I, I think it's probably something that I've been thinking about and just to get uh, the experience of like a pro runner I think not that that part of you is a bad thing but like for example like for me um because I've got young kids as well like sometimes I can't take Marcus the runner into like Marcus like dad Marcus you know or Mark work Marcus like sometimes it's it sounds really, it's like first world problems but you there's, there's like the lines are blurred sometimes between your running life and it goes into other areas of your life and you have to so know when to pull back and just be like okay cool put that to one side let's this let's navigate this part of life as this part of me or this part of me yeah I'm, no, I'm not sure it's going way too deep to no, 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 normally I have at least two to three weeks I'm actually kind of in that period now where yeah. I really try and do something else with my life so at the moment i'm painting the basement and not think about training whatsoever pretty much like in the first week two weeks maybe do zero training and just do something else but i mean really once i if i every now and then i do i go to the cinema and sit there and after two hours i kind of think man i love my life and that was it like normal people going to the cinema like think oh this is going to be great like but then literally after after two hours, I'm ready to get back to my, my life. And that just shows how much I actually uh, do enjoy the lifestyle I have. Um, but, you know, it's definitely it's, – it's a balance. And to become a successful 
runner, you kind of need to make running part of your lifestyle because then it won't be a a question as to whether you're going to go running or not. It's just something you do and you do it automatically. You just wake up, put your trainers on, like that's who you are. But then I guess it can also then uh, influence other parts of your life and you can only really do a certain amount of things really well. And if you're that sort of person likes to do things super well, then you kind of almost have to choose, do I want to be a really good parent or do I want to be a really good runner? And like, it's kind of hard to try and balance all those things. Yeah, I think it's uh, a conversation wider than this one of this podcast. We probably could like, <laughs> delve into it, but I think there's pros and cons. I think just being aware of those bits and like you're saying, for me, running is a big part of my life. And like you're saying, it's not something I have to think about doing. It's something that I enjoy to do and I do it. But at the same time, it's just like also just trying to make sure, you know, you, you, you kind of don't like um, uh, you manage other, other aspects of your life as well. So it seems like you're doing the same thing to us. And especially if you love it, then there's definitely no, no, no harm in that for sure. Yeah, I do think like uh, it is healthy to have something else though and then it will make racing easier. I think like uh, the majority of people probably have a lot more other stuff in their lives than I do, but then uh, it's worked out so far for me and I seem to be relatively happy. So sometimes it's also about just not thinking too much and just getting on with life. Then time passes and at some point you have improved. Some of the best athletes are actually sometimes the simplest ones because they don't question things, they just get on with it. They just Absolutely. put in the hard work, time goes by, they improve, they don't think too much, they're happy, content people, and then they get good. Absolutely. One of the last things I want to ask you as well is, in terms of like lessons that you've learned from yourself, what's been the biggest challenge that you faced in your running career, and, and how did you tackle it? uh biggest challenge uh i think uh so i got this foot injury it was actually like about five six years ago now i was running downhill uh hit a stone wrong got a pain in the bottom of my foot i had this pain in the bottom of my foot for about four years and it was never that bad i had to stop running completely i was always managing this pain i knew the the more i ran the more painful it would be so it wasn't very fun it was actually making running kind of like not fun at all running was my job um so then i had to create ways of training where i'd run less uh and still perform well and i did manage to do that for a while when i did start skiing and i managed to sort of take the winter off and manage this injury but it never went away um so then corona came and i finally had the opportunity there were no races to go and see a specialist he said he didn't really know what was wrong but he thinks it, he thought it was a problem with my sesamoid bones under the foot, but he wasn't really sure what we could do about it. And I could do an operation. So I did an operation. He opened up and had a look in there, uh, did some stuff. I didn't really know what he was going to do. He might have even taken the bones out. Uh, but it turns out he didn't. He did some bone grafting. I had some, some rehab time. It was still corona, so there were no races to get back to. And that was two years ago. I did that. And then I put in a really good winter training, had a really good season, put in a really good winter training last year, had a really good season. So now I'm sort of like about to start my sort of like third season with the new foot. And that does seem to have uh, given me a new lease of life. It definitely has saved my running career. Um, But I definitely learned a lot of lessons about how to train and made me question a lot of like training philosophies while I had the foot problem. So it definitely has made me a better athlete because of it. But it certainly did sort of, it was quite a challenge for a long time. And it was one I tried not to complain about, but um, 
certainly something that I should have tried to fix earlier. So, I mean, if you do get an injury or pain, I pretty much nowadays run 100% pain-free. And I know there's a lot of athletes out there which will continually take ibuprofen or paracetamol and try and run through pain. That's not me. Like, I've probably taken two paracetamol in the past five five years or something. Um, it's best to be healthy and be fit and to be able to run pain-free. And if that means doing an extra session or two on the bike or some form of cross-training which isn't running, then do that. Like, if, if you think, oh... I've got this running session today, but my foot hurts. I know running will make it worse. Just go and do it on the bike. It's not going to make that big of a difference. Like obviously you need to try and train running really well into the race, especially like two months before the race, trying to be running more. But by using cross training at other times of the year, that means you can negate some of those issues and injuries and be able to run when it, when it matters the most. I think one thing that I got from what you've just said there, especially during that difficult point, was there's an option between avoidance or accountability. And accountability, obviously, it's not always the easiest thing, but that's the option that you took to move forward. Yeah, I think uh, there definitely did come a time when actually it wasn't me, it was my wife that said that you can't run like this anymore. Get get it sorted. And I didn't really get it sorted. So she was the one that was on the phone to the insurance company and on the phone to the surgeon and the doctors and the physios and stuff. And it was actually her that really pushed it through. So I guess it comes back to how I've relied on uh, my wife for many aspects of uh, making me the athlete I am. But yeah, it definitely is worth dealing with these issues. You shouldn't have to run in pain. Like two, two big things I've learned is, yeah, one, you shouldn't have to run in pain. And number two, training like Rocky Balboa all year round isn't how you become a really good athlete because that's why I thought when I went full time, I thought I'm going to train like Rocky and Rocky trains hard. You know, he's putting effort in. It's like every day he's like out there, like smashing stuff up. But to be an athlete, you need to spend some time of the year doing that. But the majority of the time you need to train controlled. You need to train well. You need to know what you're doing, how you're doing it. And you just need consistency and training like Rocky will probably get you injured or burn out after a couple of months. So then you're not going to get that consistency. So don't don't worry if you're if you're taking a more conservative approach. If you do that for long enough, it's going to be better in the long term. Yeah, that makes sense. And shout out to your wife, like you're saying. I think it's so important to have a, a, a team around us that um, sometimes can see things that, that we can't see. And if you ever decide to go beast mode again, can I be your Apollo Creed to your Rocky Balboa? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it is a funny thing, isn't it, when you watch these films and that is, yeah. you think, oh, I need to train like that. And like, it is true, you do need to train like yeah. that. But my God, you can't do it all the time. <laughs> It's in the beach, to be honest. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Can you um, share your social details for people to follow you if they're not already following you, please? I think I'm John Alban on Strava and Instagram. And if not John Alban, then Jonathan Alban. But one of those two. It shouldn't be too hard to find. Alban isn't that common except for the uh, Formula One driver. But it's A-L-B-O-N. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being a guest on the Runners Live podcast. No, it's been fun. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of a Runners Live podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to be notified of new episodes. If something resonates with you, please let me know and share online. Also, you could do me a massive favor by leaving your review on the podcast platform which you selected as it helps the podcast grow. Your support helps make this podcast possible. If you've got any questions, please do get in touch with me on my Instagram page at Marcus underscore runs. Your time is valuable. Thank you again for sharing your time with me.